Welcome to Risk Roundup. Since the beginning of human times, human explorers and their interest in exploring the unknowns has been universal and enduring. While over the years, the nature of exploration has changed fundamentally, we the humans have always been keen to explore the unknowns and discover new worlds. In pursuit of unknowns, it is our imagination, ideas, innovations, and inventions that are helping us push the boundaries of our exploration limits in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS. It is the never-ending human drive that pushes us further to discover new worlds in the spaces that were never there. So imagination has always been an indicator of human intelligence. Since imagination is a creative power that is necessary for ideas, innovations, and inventions, in cyberspace, geospace, and space, it is driving visionaries today to understanding where these technologies, ideas, innovations, and inventions can take them beyond cyberspace, geospace, and space. To discuss the future of technology further, I'm delighted to welcome David Brink to Risk Roundup. David is a futurist, scientist, and author of the book, The Transparent Society, Will Technology Force Us to Choose Between Privacy and Freedom? He is a widely quoted expert on secrecy, privacy, and accountability. He has won the Freedom of Speech Award of the American Library Association as, and as a public speaker, futurist. David is widely consulted by governments and industries about matters of technological and social change that has spoken and has he has spoken before hundreds of audiences. He is currently an artist in residence at UCSD. He has served as a consultant on various technology future topics such as national security, the future, space exploration, and privacy transparency. He has appeared on television shows like NOAA, Life After People, The Universe, and The Architects. Amazing, you know, achievements so far, David. So welcome. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Well, I'm honored to be asked, especially by a, a group that really cares about peering into the future. Um, that's the organs that we have just above the eyes called the prefrontal lobes. Um, they're just about the only organ that we have that no other animal has, and they're what we use to peer into the future with our minds. Uh, and we, we get obsessed with it because our ancestors, it was a tool that helped them to survive. And we exist because they, they tried to do this. They tried to look into the future and see what was going to happen. The problems of that are risk assessment, and that's what we're here to discuss today. Very true, David. So technology gives us the necessary tools through which we can address the challenges related to human CGS exploration, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space. Now, since the technology gives us the foundation on which we can define and design human ecosystem, where would science and technology take us in the coming years? What do you see is the future of technology? Well, um, technology is a tool by which we expand our possibilities, our possible uh, range of futures. And uh, always uh, it, it brings disruptions. For example, uh, just, just uh, the technologies of sight and memory, uh, these have experienced uh, fantastic expansions um, since the 15th century. Uh, the uh, invention of glass lenses and movable type roughly about the same time, expanded what people were able to see, what they were able to know or, th or think about, 
um, because memory got expanded. These were prosthetics for memory and vision. Uh, also, uh, perspective changed what we could pay attention to. So attention changed. And always these things, um, vision, memory, attention, and reach are all changed by technology just about every generation. And always when this happens, uh, grouches, uh, pessimists said, humans didn't evolve or weren't made by God to drink from this fire hose. Uh, we have limited ability attention span, ability to comprehend. And if we aim all this fire hose at people, uh, expanding what they can see and know and pay attention to, um, they'll go crazy. So we have to have a top-down system, a pyramidal structure of lords and priests and scholars to mediate this, or people will go nuts and it will do harm. Always there were optimists uh, transcendentalists um, uh, who believed this is going to expand people. It's going to make people better, wiser. Always the grouches were right in the short term. For instance, the arrival of printing presses in Europe resulted in a vast expansion of not elegant, elevating books, but religious pamphlets that horribly worsened the, um, the, the religious wars of Europe. But over the course of the next 50 years, books were printed, magazines, uh, Voyager accounts to other parts of the world. And what happened was people started expanding their prefrontal lobes so they could think about things farther on the horizon than they had been thinking about. And the optimists proved right over the long run, always. Always, humans became able to drink from the fire hose and consider it the new normal. And empathy expanded because what happens when we have technological tools that expand our ability to feed our children is we stop worrying about our fear levels go down and we stop worrying about the next meal and start worrying about the next harvest. So a little farther out in time. When the harvest is reliable, we stop worrying about the next harvest and worry about um, whether or not there's enough topsoil for our grandchildren. So as the fear level goes down and the technology improves, we move our horizons of concern out farther and farther. And technology helps us to experience the lives of other people farther from us. The tribe over the hill is no longer mysteriously, darkly conspiring against us. Instead, there are other members of the same nation, and we have to worry about the nation over that distant hill. Um, and so these horizons of threat, horizons of opportunity, horizons of empathy move outward. And we're seeing that in our popular media today, in, 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 in the lessons taught by Hollywood and Bollywood, um, which are expand who you include. Uh, even if that's all about expanding who you will ally with against them. And that's why in science fiction is the explorer of these horizons. Uh, the threat horizon is explored with dangerous aliens. 
that all humanity must unite against. Uh, the opportunity horizon may be represented by aliens or by space, mining asteroids to get rich. The, the exogamy horizon, who you might want to mate with, all of a sudden the prince or princess from some other star system might be attractive. So this is a human process that comes about because technology enables us to lower our fear levels and to contemplate with new tools of vision and memory and attention things that are farther out. But the grouches are always right in the short term. And in my novel Earth back in 1989, I predicted that the internet would result in people finding little echo chambers of similar belief where they could find people who were saying the same things they believe and be immune from inputs from the outside. And we're seeing this right now in the United States. We've seen our civil war reignited. The same participants, the blue union in the gray confederacy, uh, culturally at each other's throats because citizens are able to isolate themselves in echo chambers of the same belief. And so the grouches in this expansion, this vast expansion of vision, memory, attention, that is the internet, the grouches are right in the short term. It's not a fire hose, it's a tsunami. Yes, yes, it is. It is. And you're absolutely right that the battle between optimism, pessimism and realism is ongoing and we just cannot uh, uh, prevent that. So that battle will continue. And as we continue to explore this human ecosystem on the back of technology, the hope is to individually and collectively come up with ideas, imagination, innovation and inv inventions to not only bring security for humanity in cyberspace, geospace, and space, but also challenge ourselves to bring progress and development for humanity and prevent those silos that you just talked about. We don't want to go you know, backwards. We want to take the humanity forward. We want to identify why we are here as humans and why what our goals are, what, what we need to do in the bigger picture of the universe. So what do you think seems to be in store for humanity? Will the technology help us? It will enable us to prevent those silos that you just talked about, which are extremely dangerous. And can we move past that? And can we have a collective vision and collective future for humanity? Well, I, I, I think that's one of the best questions I've been asked in a year, um, it, especially I loved, loved your term inner space, outer space, cyberspace and space. I, I don't know if I remembered it right, but um, going back to let's get let's 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 use these prefrontal lobes here and talk about what they do. These enable us to do projection of ourselves into the future other places, and other people. Um, and it's interesting that they're just above the eyes. So the Bible has a phrase, he had, Moses had lamps on his brow. So I call these the lamps on our brow that, that make us look ahead or look into other people because they're the seat of empathy where you think the, the thought experiment, or as Einstein called it, the Gedanken experiment, um, what if I were that person? 
what might my motives be? Now that's very empowering. You could be thinking that in order to defeat that person, but in defeating that person, if you do it that way, at least you'll have some empathy for them. You'll, you're using the empathy for understanding what that person is thinking and what their motives might be in order to defeat them. But along with empathy, often in humans comes sympathy. Sometimes you can't help it. If you empathize in order to defeat your enemy, you find yourself sympathizing a little bit. And you see that in this new movie, Black Panther, where the villain has to be defeated, and yet you have some sympathy. Um, these also are the seats for anticipation, where you try to anticipate what might happen next. What might happen if I wear this tomorrow? What might people think if I raise this at the meeting tomorrow? What might happen if I try to run this yellow light? And the answer, especially if you're male, is usually no. <laughs> what might happen if I, if I follow my impulses is usually don't. But the problem with anticipation, and I, I remind government agencies who are members of the protector caste, the cast of people who are assigned to try to protect, their obsession is to anticipate threats. And some of them are very, very brilliant and very sincere, and they do very good work. But I pointed out to them that anticipation inevitably eventually fails because we're fools. We think we can spy out what the future is going to be like, but the greatest human talent is always delusion. We delude ourselves into believing our models of the future or our models of other people. Now, delusion is the seat of imagination. So I create science fiction novels. Uh, one of them, Kevin Costner made into a movie called The Postman. Um, I create stories about the future and they are industrial grade magic. They are imagination designed for people's delusion, but it's honest. These are honest delusions. But we all fool ourselves with these delusions. So what is the answer to this perennial human problem? Well, on 9-11, uh, November, uh, uh, I mean, September 11th, 2001, um, an event happened, a, a terrorist attack in, in, in New York City. The Trade Center towers went down. And every action taken by the anticipating class, the protector caste, failed. But many, many excellent things were done by private citizens armed with these things, cell phones. And they showed what needs to be the partner of anticipation, resilience. If you have resilience, then when your anticipation fails, you'll take the blow, roll with it, and get up immediately and do what needs to be done. And resilience requires a different set of tools. And so when I hector these guys in the protector cast, I say, if you emphasize only anticipation, and this is true for people in business, 
in almost every walk of life. If you try to minimize your risk using only anticipation with these prefrontal lobes or your, or your computer models or whatever tool you use, eventually you will fail. Your systems have to also have the partner of anticipation, and that partner is resilience. That is true, but the resilience, we cannot achieve resilience unless we understand what the risk we are facing, where the vulnerabilities lie, because the technology is changing all these systems so dramatically. Every day we are seeing so many new advances in technology and technology is embedded in everything we as individuals or entities across nations, it's government industries, organizations and academia, uh, in short referred to as NGIOA, they do today. It is improving the ways we connect, it is improving the ways we communicate, live, work, experience the world. In fact, technology is built into every single interaction that we have today and will have in the coming tomorrow. So as the ideas, imagination and inner drive help innovators to innovate better tools and technology, it is improving the way we live with new products and services that will become indispensable in the future, including how we create resilient systems from financial systems to the military system, the security systems that uh, the security, uh, you know, the military and the government agencies that were accountable to provide security for its citizens. That itself is changing now. The nature of security is changing. So how we define, how we and how we uh, describe and how we create these new systems, M being mindful about the changes that are happening every single day due to the advances in technology, how the financial systems are, how the security systems are, how the healthcare systems are, how the communication systems are. We need to understand, identify all these changes happening in these new systems. We need to identify the vulnerabilities. We need to identify all possible risk variables. We need to integrate security into each and every risk variable. And then we will be able to make our systems resilient. Then we'll be able to bring resilience to not only our individuals across nations, you know, but even their entities like you know, governments and the industries, the organizations and academia and military, everything needs to be resilient. But we need to understand the risk so that security risk, we need to understand what exactly means to be, you know, secure these days. Is security just about getting attacked from the uh, enemy nations in our geospace? Or is security about getting the... Uh, hacked on the internet or is security about uh, getting uh, you know the ideas on internet the communications that is happening that could divide people so there are a lot of things happening and a lot of security risks we need to be mindful so from your assessment what technological advances you see are the trendsetters that we need to be mindful about if we want to create a resilient future for our uh, humanity well, uh, the as I said, there have been um, technological disruptors since the 15th century. Uh, glass lenses and movable type that made books and magazines and 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 uh, spread literacy around the world. These disrupted that world as much as the internet is disrupting us today. 
but the time scales were smaller and the geographic scales were smaller. The religious wars in Europe that were worsened by the printing press um, were confined to Europe. Today, one of our major risks is that anything uh, that disrupts the world can disrupt the entire world um, and on a very, very rapid scale. So this business of being able to wait out the immediate bad consequences of these disruptive technologies while the good takes root and takes effect, we don't have that kind of time. We have to, for instance, in the United States, get past this state of civil war that we're in uh, and not let it become hot. Uh, and and that this requires that the uh, prefrontals um, actually that we all talk together. You, spo you, you spoke of cooperation, of, uh, of collaboration. We have to collaborate on figuring out what has always worked for us and what has always failed for us. And my book, The Transparent Society, points out that the enlightenment, which has accomplished in the last 250 years more than all civil, human civilizations combined in uh, liberating us, in uh, getting us the tools to be able to be um, assertive individuals in freeing us from expecting our children will die uh, overnight, um, in liberating our minds. This, this came about because we found a solution, not a perfect solution, but a solution to that problem that I spoke of earlier. And that is the greatest human talent is delusion. We love to create subjective, magical worlds inside our heads and believe passionately that they are true. And science teaches us some techniques. And by the way, this is imagination is also the font of our creativity. So it's a good thing that we have this fantastic talent to imagine things different than they are. And in my science fiction novels, I uh, cater to this by offering industrial grade, high quality alternate realities. But this also leads to fantastic amounts of error because people are stubborn about what they believe to be true. Now we have found across human history there is one antidote to the errors of delusion, and that is a gift. I have delusions, and trained as a scientist, I can find some of them, because science teaches the young scientists to recite the sacred catechism of science. Uh, it's the sacred core belief statement of this religion, and that is, I might be wrong. And if you recite, I might be wrong, and you learn the tools of science, then maybe you can catch half, two-thirds, even 90% of your errors. You will still cling desperately to many of your delusions. 
the real trick we found is that I have my delusions, you don't have the same ones. So you can see my delusions and tell me about them. It's called criticism. I can see some of your delusions and I can tell you about them. That is the great gift that lets us keep the good, good imagination and winnow down the dangerous delusions. But there's a problem with it. We hate criticism. I, I'm, if you tell me where I'm deluded, I am going to reflexively hate you for it. And I will then return the favor you just did me by pointing out your errors and you will hate it. We can teach ourselves to grit our teeth and say, bring the criticism because that's how I can get better. That's how I can find my mistakes. That's how I can avoid risks. That's how I can avoid catastrophe for my business, for my family, for my species. Yes, for the, uh, what you are asking is that we need to create a more tolerant society that is welcoming the criticism and is taking it as a tool to make themselves better. Because, as, I mean, if we are looking at the society that we have created over the years, uh, we have created all silos and we have created no collaboration. We have created a society and culture where everyone is looking after just themselves. So this is an amazing time where technology has given us a power of connectivity, communication and collaboration. Without internet, everyone was living in silos and there, everyone was just looking after their interests. There was no communication, there was no collaboration, there was no interaction. So this digital global age connectivity is on the rise as the emerging approach seems to be on forging strong trusted relationships within between individuals and entities across NGRA, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. So where do you see this communication technology and the resulting connectivity taking us individually and collectively? I mean, we do have to move forward past these silos. Well, uh, I, I both agree with you and disagree. I agree with you about the goal. We have to become more we have to become more cooperative and uh, understand each other. It is essential that we become more able to penetrate our own errors and our each other's errors. And criticism is one of the best methods for doing that. The interesting thing is, of course, that your values that you just expressed, saying that we must become better at uh, understanding each other. The interesting thing that you just expressed was a value system that values interpersonal communication, error correction, uh, learning from each other. You just expressed a value system that you were taught in this civilization, this worldwide liberal civilization. Therefore, you are critical of the degree to which we have not lived up to your values. Now, it happens that I agree with those values, and I totally agree that those are the values that might save us. 
But I think it's important now and then for us to step back and recognize that we have those values because that's what works. In other words, we are already doing those things more than any previous culture. We are already cooperating more. We already have more institutions that encourage mutual polite criticism. Um, crit mutual criticism is now inherent in the five great arenas that we've built. Um, competitive markets, democracy, science, which is very competitive, um, justice courts, and sports. And the perfect example of this is sports. Um, we enjoy them. We know that they are ferociously competitive and they would not work unless they were tightly regulated. Because unless you have referees on the field with whistles, very, very closely watching the behavior of the players, there will be death. I, there'll be murder in any game. The game won't be any fun. The same is true of markets. Those who claim that capitalism works when it's completely unregulated are ignoring 6,000 years of human history. Across all of that history, those who had power used that power to cheat. And then the markets were destroyed because they weren't competitive anymore. It's reducing cheating that is one of the most powerful effects of light. And light is what my book, The Transparent Society, about is about. And I put some of that in my novel, Earth, and my most recent novel, Existence. Let me put this in context. This is a forum about risk, right? Yeah. Okay. There are people in Britain like Nicholas Bostrom. He runs the Center for Existential Risk. And Lord Martin Rees uh, in Cambridge down the road, um, uh, whose institute studies risk. Uh, and they both also study what's called the Fermi paradox. Now, I've been studying it for 35 years. The Fermi paradox, perhaps some of your viewers have heard of SETI, S-E-T-I, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We have radio telescopes, now we have optical laser searches, looking for signs that there might be somebody out there. And for 50 years, we found nothing. And we're starting to come to the terms with the notion that the universe, there's probably intelligent life out there, of course, but that it is probably more sparse more scarce than we had thought. And so that's the Fermi paradox. Why do we see so far, this may change tomorrow, but why do we see so far no immediate signs that there are others out there, others with minds like ours and technology? And people have come up with about a hundred hypotheses. One was that planets were rare. And that one has been eliminated by science. 20 years ago, we knew of two planets outside our solar system. Now we know of 5,000 planets outside our solar system. We're amazing. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this a wonderful time to live in? So that hypothesis that planets are rare, 
has been disproved. All right, so now we have 99 left. Bostrom and Reese talk about a class of explanations for why we seem to be alone for now called the great filters. And this is the notion that life is not rare, intelligence is not rare, technological civilizations are not rare. Instead, they seem to be rare because they kill themselves off. Because they run into heightened levels of risk that, you know, we thought nuclear war uh, or nuclear winter might kill everyone. Well, we've gone 70 years with nuclear weapons, and since the first finger burn, we haven't used them. So we've proved that it's possible for an intelligent life form to evade this risk. Tomorrow, we may see mushroom clouds everywhere, but we proved that it's possible. So what are some of the others? Uh, ecological damage. We're entering a phase called the Anthropocene, when uh, we may be wiping out the nat natural world, global climate change. Um, we have proved that humans are capable of stepping back, noticing these disasters and stepping back. We saved the ozone layer, for example, by changing our refrigerators. We saved the whales. So we're capable of it, but will we? Yes, that is a very fair concern and a question, and you are absolutely right. And so are the other uh, visionaries uh, and futurists like Nick, who are you know concerned about humanity destroying itself. It's not that technological development is uh, has not happened before. You are they, you and others. You are all right about that. Technological developments ha has been happening, have been happening over the years, but we also have humans have a tendency to. Uh, compete and to co take the competition to such a level that they destroy each other. And that is such a big concern right now when we look at cyber warfare, when we look at uh, electronic warfare, when we look at the emerging, you know, space warfare, there are risks everywhere. The geo warfare that we have gone through that uh, or has been going through is nothing as compared to the cyber warfare or uh, electronic warfare or space warfare. And but it seems that again, you know, this time things could be a little different because technology is giving us a hope. And how? Because there are many people who say that, and many visionaries, technology visionaries who are saying that in the coming years, we will see the gradual transition from internet to a brain net. Internet is what we are just typing words and communicating either through voice or text, but we are not able to feel each other. We are not able to feel each other's thoughts or emotions or memories, and we are not able to feel each other's pain. But it seems that technology will give us a potential of a brain net an internet will be replaced by a brain net and that will probably give us a hope of understanding the challenges that everyone goes through, understanding the pain that everyone goes through across nations. And that will hopefully give us a pause in, you know, taking the actions, the destructive actions that humanity has been taking over the years. So it seems like there is a hope with the, you know, if we are able to create the brain net, like, you know, Dr. Kaku, the professor of theoretical physics that, uh, you know, has been uh, visioning and others are visioning. If we are able to 
create that system instead of internet, a brain net where we feel each other's uh, uh, emotion. And if we, it, it looks like, you know, if we are able to create this, it will revolutionize communication and even the entertainment. So if we, if the Hollywood creates movies, then they will be able to convey the emotions and feelings and not just, you know, people on a, the, you know, silver screen or the theater screens that we are watching. So if we will be able to feel everything. And if we feel other people's pain, if we feel other people's struggles and their challenges, their risk, then we will be able to create a better society because I don't believe that there is any human being alive who will feel that kind of pain strongly and, you know, decide that, no, that's so what? Let me still go ahead and destroy them. Let me st still go ahead and uh, destroy that nation or create, uh, destroy that ethnicity and things like that. So it seems that we have a hope with the technology do you do you see that? Well, you see, this is in the context of everything that I've said before, that every time we include our increase our vision, our ability to project empathy or or uh, project ourselves elsewhere, uh, every time we include uh, increase memory uh, or awareness, there's always optimists who think that things will get better, and there's always pessimists who think who look at the problems. We need both. You just projected into the future of the next set of technologies, and you just expressed a hope that this would ex enable us to understand each other. And that's exactly what happened when books spread, when we got newsreels uh, in the movie theaters that showed us poverty uh, in other parts of the world. Um, that's that's when you got a rise in the American public being willing to stand up for China um, back during the 1930s um, when it was just abstract when they read it in a newspaper about what was happening in China. Uh, television expanded our ability to see what's going on elsewhere and empowered the American youth to fight against the war in Vietnam. So... Um, just last night, we had the Academy Awards uh, here in California, and what was almost everyone talking about? Empathy, using film to expand empathy, and that's exactly what you were talking about, Jishri. And so the, what you have is the, uh, the desire to, to use these new technologies of vision, of, of expansion of the self, to expand these horizons of inclusion that I was talking about earlier, um, so that we can perceive other people. But look at your value system. This is what you want, because you, as a member of this civilization, watched all those Hollywood and Bollywood films. And so you are a product of a propaganda system that says we must become more empathic. So you're a member of a culture and you just expressed that value system. Um, of course, somebody else is going to say, if we get this brain net, then might there be bad consequences? For instance, homogenization, making everyone the same. Or might this enable an artificial intelligence to control us? And that's the job, warning about such uh, uh, upsides and downsides, that's the job of us science fiction authors, to come up with scenarios like we were predicting the internet uh, 25 years ago. 
Uh, now we're talking about artificial intelligence. And Hollywood always goes for the simplistic version. And so these are the dire warnings that artificial intelligence might, um, might be uh, malevolent or might try to destroy us. Or basically, most of these stories are about artificial intelligence might rebuild the pyramidal social structure that we barely escaped after 6,000 years of horror. Um, but uh, there are a few that are optimistic, like uh, a movie called Her. But the question is, how might artificial intelligence come about? And I'm sure on your website, when you talk about this, you will link to um, my, my talk, my hour-long talk at IBM's World of Watson, which was very, very popular, in which I talk about the six different approaches to how artificial intelligence might come about and how we might persuade artificial intelligences, even if they are much smarter than us, to still be loyal members of, a, of an open and eclectic and broad and tolerant civilization. This is one of the main problems that we face. Uh, uh, and it has to do with the fundamental topic of your, um, of your uh, mm -hmm. gathering, which is risk. Um, and so I encourage, uh, you know, your, your audience, I encourage your followers to stay tuned to this very intelligent um, uh, podcast and, uh, and the, the, the wonderful questions asked by its wonderful hosts. And, you know, we just dipped our toes into this, uh, this topic. Uh, we're trying to do more at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UCSD. So folks should look that up. And, uh, and are, are there any, um, any aspects we didn't cover? Oh, the, I mean, this is such a broad topic, David. I mean, there's so much to talk, but you are absolutely right that this is a great beginning. And we still have to I understand where the technology is taking us with respect to, you know, nations, how the governments will look like tomorrow, how will the uh, industries be impacted because of uh, the amazing advances in technology, how the, uh, you talked about the artificial intelligence, so for our, the machine intelligence, how it's going to empower humans, how where we will take the intelligence, how the uh, blockchain is going to redefine and redesign the systems, how the virtual reality, augmented reality is going to, change the way we do things to, you know, how the smart cars to flying cars and the asteroid mining and all those, you know, amazing technologies, how the healthcare, you know, robo doctors and how all these amazing technological advances, how are they going to redefine, redesign systems? There's so much to talk, but we obviously cannot do all that in one just round of session. So thank you so much, uh, David, for your uh, participation in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on the future of technology and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided uh, on the uh, how the humanity could be impacted, how we have gone through over the years and how technology has fundamentally transformed and how the cultural revolution keeps going and how the battle between the optimism, pessimism and realism is still an ongoing battle. So even if a in single individual 
or entity can come up with an idea to help advance the future of technology and innovate based on the understanding they receive from the discussion we had today. This is kind of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Uh, th thank you and, uh, and, and keep up the great work. And I hope everyone out there um, continues to fight for an open and um, perceptive civilization. Thank you so much, David. So developing technologies is only one thing. It's what we do with it that matters for the humanity and risk groups. Cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, <clears throat> evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA and CTS administrations, its government industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.